This episode is brought to you by Heal Justice Accelerator, the world's only accelerator that focuses on preventing and resolving justice problems. They help startups scale and grow by providing coaching, mentoring, and grants. Government speaks the language of regulation. Now, in any instance, you know, in whatever field you are in, if regulation has not gotten to you, it will. And and the bigger you become and the more structured you are and the more you look like you know what you're doing, you will not operate in a gray area for long. Something is going to come and it's best to start preparing for that thing that is coming. The only thing politicians understand is power. If you can show them that we can get you out of power or we can ensure your continued seat in government, that's the only thing they understand. And for all of us to understand the power that we have in our hands, if we can organize. Can we be like Senegal? Can we be like Tunisia? Those are countries that have startup acts and it is a great way to bring all these recommendations we have and say it is time that Kenya had a startup act. Hello and welcome to the Meta Podcast, a podcast dedicated to bringing you live recordings from Meta events covering a wide range of multidisciplinary topics converging at the intersection of innovation in the African continent. In this episode, we discussed how startups can influence the lawmaking process, especially for laws that affect businesses in the county and national level. The goal of this first episode of the Startup Lobbying series was to discuss the importance of startups participating in the lawmaking process and instigate a mindset shift from compliance to influencing government. The speakers included Ali Hussein, the CEO of Kipochi, Linda Bonio, the CEO of Lawyers Hub, and Daniel Ngugi, the head of legal and administration at Twiga Foods. The conversation was moderated by Eric Karioki, the head of Hill Justice Accelerator, East Africa. So I'd like to set a bit of the stage why we're having this conversation. We know government plays a vital role in the business environment. Normally it's in three main components. One, we know it is KRA or what you call the taxman or taxation. It needs money to run. The second bit of it is that it's quality control and setting up standards. So that's why you have agencies such as the Kenya Bureau of Standards is to ensure that things are safe, things are in a certain standard, and to ensure whether it's a public or its businesses were being compliant. And the third aspect of it is creating an enabling environment for business to grow. So that means there are simple things as ensuring we are safe through law enforcement through security, ensuring that we have a strong healthcare system uh, that can ensure everyone is able to uh, still uh, live a healthy um, lifestyle and have a good well-being. And thirdly, it's also things as simple as having a robust education system that enables us to have uh, good skills and knowledge and that can feed into a, a very productive workforce. But also the reality is this. For a number of years, for the last five years, startups have struggled. A lot of it is that uh, it has been an increasing tax burden due to, you know, poor economic downturns, uh, towns. It has been issues around debt that has made startups, it has been issues around limited capital. So we know startups have struggled. 
We also know the traditional way if government increased tax is that the startup will be, okay, I don't like this tax, but I will basically push it to my customer. Unfortunately, today with the high unemployment rate, the COVID-19 pandemic, we can no longer do that. So we need to find a way, how can we get to a, on the table with government and negotiate uh, good policies, good laws, good uh, incentives, both at the county level and the national level, to be able to have that conversation. So my question, my kickoff question to all my panelists, why is it important? If I am a startup to consider taking a proactive approach with engaging the, into the lawmaking process, and can we really do anything about it? Can we really influence that aspect? So I would like to kick off uh, with, I think, Linda, this time around. I think you have played a huge role. Uh, you did a hackathon, I think, uh, it's a month ago around COVID-19 uh, pandemic on creating a law for it. You have been part of the Huduma number conversation for the longest. And we just had this digital tax on Netflix, on bloggers coming on board, and you are also part of that conversation. Do you think startups should even try to get involved in the lawmaking process and why is it important? Um, I think startups need to get involved um, in the lawmaking process. One, because they are citizens or residents in the country and we have the constitution of Kenya that grants rights to both residents and also to citizens. Um, I think due to that, you need to get involved in whatever law or whatever changes that happen in the country. Um, but then also, too, it's important to have, you know, uh, set up, stand up for things they are passionate about. Uh, because from experience, we have situations where lawmakers make laws, but they have no understanding of that particular sector. And so they will rely on um, sometimes foreign organizations or consultants who will actually stand for their own interests because, you know, politics is about lobbying and lobbying is about interests. And so if you do not lobby or engage, then your interests will never be taken care of, you know. Um, and I also think that as startups, we need to, uh, you know, divorce ourselves from just the engagement during elections as individuals and then wait for another five years and then engage. Um, I think engagement needs to be very con continuous to ensure that um, we actually get, you know, the small issues, the laws, the acts, the amendments, things that happen every day, that we actually well represented in that. Um, for any startup that thinks that they should, they feel divorced from the entire lawmaking process, um, I don't think we need to know how the law works. What we need to know is how our sector works, what our sector needs, and then engage with policymakers that will be able to bring that, that alive. Okay, thank you. That's, uh, that's a very interesting perspective. And I actually would like to invite Ali, if you can build on to that. What has been your perspective? What have you seen? For any organization, whether you're a startup or established company, when it comes to regulation and policy making, equate that with... So if you're in a restaurant, uh, you are either of a number of things. You are either sitting at the table having a conversation and eating, or you are one of the attendees or waiters who are serving food, or you're on the menu. So consider yourself where you want to sit. Keeping quiet and not getting involved. 
uh, in discourse about your industry when it comes to policy and regulation, you are basically putting yourself on the menu and you will be eaten. Uh, that is my guarantee to you. You will be eaten. The problem is that most of us in the tech ecosystem, in the startup ecosystem, we actually think we don't have the time to engage or it's something those people, uh, NGOs do. I want to disabuse guys from that sort of thinking. A few years back, uh, it's hardly two years back, we, a consortium of professionals in the tech ecosystem brought down a proposed bill called the ICT Professionals uh, Practitioners Bill. And we were asking which, who is an ICT practitioner? Uh, you know, so, and we hear rumors that that bill is sort of going to come back. Uh, and if it does come back, and if we don't speak with one voice, we are going to be in trouble. So that for me is, an, is a simple analogy why we need to engage with policymakers and regulators, not just regulators. Policymakers are important because they are the ones who set the stage for what regulators will regulate. Can we influence? So today, like in about two weeks' time, we have been invited by the Senate to give our views on a number of things. Why? It's not about money. It's not about having money. It's actually being passionate about what you do, being passionate about the country that you live in, being passionate about the industry that you play in, and understanding that if you don't clean up your environment where you live, then eventually all that chaffle, all that badness that is emanating from outside will come into your house. So can we influence? No doubt about it. We have the power that we don't believe, we don't even think that we have. Last but not least, I would like to remind everyone, when you're dealing with government, remember fundamentally that government is here to serve us, not the other way around. Thank you, Ali. Now, I'm going to shift now to Daniel. Now, Daniel, you trigger food since uh, 2014. You've had over 4,000 uh, suppliers, over 35,000 vendors. You're bridging that gap between the marketplace and the small-scale uh, farmer. And one of the key things that we tend to find, I being a budding farmer, is that in the machinanis, that our roads, the road networks there uh, that support the infrastructure for farmers to get uh, their food to the market is bad, yet we're creating highways. And one of the key things is that we know government plays a huge role in uh, putting funds into infrastructure. And But most people feel like I cannot engage, I, if I'm a small-scale farmer in Kirinyaga County where I I come from is that I cannot get involved or how do I get involved? What's your perspective around uh, uh, what you have been doing considering also food security is the yeah. part of the big four? So you're very right, Eric. Um, there's a general misperception around what our contribution as citizens is towards some of the decisions that are made by uh, people in government. And interestingly, this is one of the conversations that we've had with a couple of county governments 
who then come to us and ask, how then can we contribute towards empowering the smallholder farmers within our areas? How can we boost agriculture within our counties, etc.? And sometimes the solutions are not huge. Sometimes all you need is a road that is passable. Sometimes all you need is some water infrastructure. Sometimes you just need a bit of hand-holding in terms of how do you upscale your farmers? How do you create an opportunity for other players to even come in and work with your farmers, not just Twiga, for instance? And I think there's always been this belief that, uh, you know, once, once we vote in our local leadership, then we stop at that particular point in time. And then we hand over the decision-making process to those who we elected to go and kind of represent our needs and our views in whatever legislative house it is, be it at the county level or at the national assembly level, which, which sometimes is quite often misleading. Uh, because in any case, every step of whatever decision-making process it is, with respect to how that money is being spent and what infrastructure is supposed to be developed, it is a requirement legally for us as citizens, for our input to be heard and for us to kind of say what it is that we want, what our thoughts around what the government's plan is for a particular infrastructure piece. And I think it's just to kind of, uh, we need to step out of this belief that, you know, our views do not matter. They do. And more often than not, uh, people in positions to make these decisions do quite often listen to your views. Uh, but the thing is, if, if you don't speak up, if you don't say what it is you want, then nobody, you know, will kind of do what you want because, you know, sadly it's, you know, you ask and, and, and you receive. That's, that's how it works. Okay. Thank you. I love that, um, all of us see the need that to get involved to, that we do have a, a voice and we do have power to get engaged. But one of the key things sometimes that's also often confusing to me as an ordinary business person or entrepreneur is sort of the, the lay of the land. We have county governments that are almost a 10, year, 10 years old. Uh, they came in with the, the, the new constitution. We have policies that are developed by regulators, whether it's the capital markets, BK, CABs, uh, or at the ministry level. We have national laws that are implemented. Um, what's the interplay between this policy, county, national laws, and where can we play our role in that whole mix? Linda. Um, thank you very much, Eric. Um, when uh, we had the new, the, sorry, it's no longer called the new constitution, but the constitution in 2010, um, I was part of, um, you know, a, a particular function of, uh, you know, we had the yes and the no's and the chungwe and whatever. Um, so I was part of uh, one of the groups and we went around the country talking about the constitution and telling people, you know, what it meant. Um, and one of the classes of the new, the constitution is article 10 that actually brings in the aspect of public participation, that for us to have any law, um, there needs to be public participation. The challenge has been that we do not have um, a law passed by parliament that prescribes public participation. Several organizations have tried to do this from the county level. Uh, we have, I think, Transparency International, TISA has been working on this as well, um, to just see how we can have public participation prescribed. Because what we have now is government sometimes, and we've experienced this during COVID, where government will just put out a law on Friday and call for public participation and close it up on Monday. 
And so you have 48 hours to bring in your feedback. Um, and then you, it's maybe a new subject. You don't know what to, you know, what to say about it. You need to research. You need to get together. Um, and so one of the things that we must do, I think, as a bare minimum, especially as a startup sector, is to push for, you know, a law that prescribes public participation. What is public participation? What are the principles around public participation? Um, and the Institute for Economic Affairs, IEA, has tried to also write out um, what are the you know, factors that you know, would show that there was ample public participation uh, and that, that it's just not a facade or you know, a public show, but it's actually um, you know, uh, in-depth public participation because you have people brought in a room and then they're told, okay, uh, the rest, you, you guys are startups, call yourself startups, uh, tell us what you think, and then we pass that law. And when you go to court and indicate that we were actually not consulted, uh, the courts will say, okay, but we have this attendance list of startups that actually um, attended this meeting and they engaged with government. Um, and so that's a problem. I think um, once it's solved, then we can be able to amply uh, to you know ably participate in 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 affairs that concern you know in public affairs. You asked a question around um, counties and the national in national laws. Um, just a rundown on how laws are made. So in the national government, um, you can come up with laws in two ways. One, um, if you're a government guy, you can go to the ministry and say, you know what, we think we need a policy around a startup act like other countries have done. And then the ministry will come up with a policy. They will do a research. Do we need it? And then eventually from the policy, once it's passed as a national policy, then you will have an act. And that particular act will be discussed in parliament. So they'll take in a draft to parliament, which will be a government-sponsored uh, bill. And then that bill will go through the stages of hearings. People can come in and get give their views before the parliamentary committees. And then once it's passed, it's taken to, you know, it's to the president. The president signs it into law and gives it an effective date. However, we all know that this is a political process. And so government may not prioritize certain, you know, issues, let's say like a startup environment. And so what happens is that people would actually lobby private members. That's people in the members of parliament who are in the opposition to come up with a private members bill. And through this private members bill, the easy part has been that people actually um, like the sector, either non-governmental organizations or foreign organizations who come up with a, 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 you know, a draft, engage maybe a consultant, do a draft and then, um, identify a friendly member of parliament who will then take it to parliament and hope that it can get into the order paper. Once it gets to the order paper, then you're sure that now this can be discussed and then it goes through the, the life cycle. What we've learned through now, especially COVID, is that, you know, the speaker will give priority to government bills rather than private members' bills. And so it takes such a while to get to get things done. And so it's important for lobbying to take place at national level. If you go to the Constitution, Article 185 talks about counties and the legislative power of counties. And so counties, there's certain aspects of the law that they will pass. And this includes anything listed under Schedule um, Schedule Six. Schedule Six sort of separates what are the roles of counties and what are the roles of you know the national government. So if you're talking about maybe public health, if you're talking about education, which is basic education from kindergarten, that's the domain of the counties. And so if your startup lies in that particular sector, then you know who makes laws would definitely affect you. If you're into pets and dogs and whatever, that's a county function. And so a lot of these things will get, you know, you'll have to engage your county, you know, assembly. Um, and so if you need to keep your eye on law, then one, you need to keep your eye on the National Assembly and see what are the things that are relevant. And the Kenya Law Reports is really up-to-dated. Uh, our country is 
you know, has been, you know, at the forefront of digitizing laws. And so you're able to see a bill tracker that actually shows you which bills are coming up, you know, uh, and what you need to engage in, what stage it is at, and if there's a call for public participation. For the counties, we still have that gap. Um, and so it's important to also just keep your tabs on whatever county that you engage in. You need to engage with the executive and you need to know who is your MCA. Like your MCA does not have to, the job doesn't end, like uh, Ngugi has said, on election day. It needs to it needs to be a continuous process where you you organize, and so um, how do we keep our eyes on this? If you are a small startup who has no budget, you have no policy uh, person in your team, you won't be able to engage as ably. But what you need to do as startup is to organize, get together in groups, and that means maybe an association, and through that particular association, then get your voice heard. What we have in Kenya now is uh, KEPSA, which is the um, you know the Kenya Private Sector Alliance. That's you know, um, engaging government constantly on policies that relate to businesses. Uh, we have a startup cluster within KEPSA that, um, you know, holds the startups and they get their voices heard. Um, I, I personally haven't joined. Um, I have, um, and I'm going to join after this webinar. But what I, I've seen the impact of the work that they do to ensure that the voices of startups are actually heard, the, the voices of businesses are heard. Startups, I'm not sure that voice has been heard as it is now because we ha haven't organized ourselves in groups that would help us do this. Um, and so um, I think we can learn a lot from KEPSA. And during this COVID period, um, one of the things that I saw as a pattern was that the president constantly listened to KEPSA. Even if you want to know whether there's going to be a lockdown or not, please just look at what KEPSA is saying. KEPSA had recommended that the curfew be extended to 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. The president took that up. There are several things that they recommended, and I kept looking at what they were saying, and the president would come in and actually say, yeah, this is the way we are going. And KEPSA have had meetings um, from, you know, from the updates we get from the Law Society. We've seen they've had meetings with, you know, cabinet ministers um, and just to talk about what to do and how to reopen. Um, so if you uh, we get to that level of startups where we actually li listen to and we play the role of thought leadership, where we actually think of scenarios, we advise government on how do you ably open? Is it safe to open? What do we do about exports, about airports? I think that's the voice that we're looking for. Um, the risk that we stand to, you know, lose is that some of us think our because we're in the tech sector, um, that we are just apps and we're in the cyberspace and nobody touches us. But now even with digital tax, you realize that government doesn't care where you exist, exist or not, provided you breathe the air that is in on this particular country, then you actually, you're going to be taxed. They're going to treat you as an individual and they're slowly separating the digital world, you know, from, from the, the physical world and saying, you know what, that we have to tax you anyway. And when tax gets to you, that means that, that everything gets to you then because you're sharing resources that are located to this country. Um, finally, I just want to say that it's it's important to, despite our our different uh, legislative frameworks, we need to learn from the US and the in Europe, for example. Um, I know some of us in the past we've heard about you know what has happened. There are organizations that have refused to advertise on Facebook just because people have asked, and and even Twitter. You have citizens asking and saying, um, you know, there are problems with moderating online content. Um, please, government, have laws that address these things. But you know how governments work? If they're members of parliament or senators, they're lobbied. They're given money by big tech companies. And what do, big, what do they do? They sit back and do nothing about it. But now we have companies that are coming up, like Unilever, you have, um, uh, you know, just recently they said, we are not advertising anymore on online platforms. And so they say, we are, if you're not making changes on your platform, you're not getting our money. So that's the power of corporations and startups, just coming in and saying, 
saying that you're going to reform the law. If you don't reform the law, we will not buy. And we also can learn from the Black Lives Matter movement, where people list organizations and say, um, this is what we're doing wrong. Government has refused to fix it, but what we're going to do is to keep our money and give it to organizations that actually comply. I think we can learn that and do something better around around our you know our lobbying as startups. Thank you, Linda. I mean, that was very insightful and very informative. You raised a good point about lobbying. And I would like, you know, we named, we had a few discussions when we were talking about what to name this series and lobbying came up. And I, for this conversation, I would actually want to jump in with Ali is that really who pays the piper dictates the tune. And money and politics are very intertwined. How do you, as a startup, not a lot of money uh, to go by. How do you still get your voice heard? And how does money play in actually a role in the whole lobbying? Uh, can you do without money? So, Eric, you know, when you bring up the big tech conversation, you want to put things into perspective. So if you look at records, and if we look at the U.S. as a sort of use case or as an example in terms of how lobbying works, look, let's be clear. What is lobbying if it's not just bribing lawmakers within the framework of the law? And is, it man is money enough? So if you look at big tech companies last year, they spent more than $500 million dollars in lobbying activities in the US and across the world. Does a startup have that kind of money? $500 million is a rounding error in Amazon's balance sheet. So really, that's neither here nor there for them. But even with the money they are spending, we all know the problems that big tech is facing from a regulatory and a policy perspective. Facebook, with all its money, Libra has been is as good as dead, right? WhatsApp has literally been stopped on its truck in Brazil. So beyond money, I believe there's a new dispensation that is coming into play. And that is simply being a good global citizen. You cannot substitute that with dollars or with shillings or with rands or with whatever. It does not matter how much money you spend. But if you are a bad player in the ecosystem, it will catch up with you. One day it will catch up with you. And I think if you want to look at how organizations have learned from their mistakes of the past, just look at Microsoft. Look at how Microsoft has, has evolved to become a good citizen. I mean, for crying out loud, who would have thought that Microsoft would embrace open source? Who would have thought Microsoft would do the things that it's doing today? So money is important. I'm not saying money is not important. But I'm saying ultimately being a good global citizen will pay off not just for your customers, through your customers, but generally from a brand perspective. Now, uh, I love the fact that uh, Linda sort of broke down the lawmaking process from the, uh, you know, from the counties to the to the government level to the national government level uh, to a global level, um, and it may seem very intimidating for startups in the ecosystem. But I want 
to remind everyone of the famous African proverb. If you want to walk fast, walk alone. If you want to go further, walk with other people. So we should never feel that we are, you know, sort of out in the deep end we can't swim. Let's learn the skill set of plugging in the holes that we we are unable to plug in by bringing in partners who can we can work together uh law firms pr firms bloggers we can all come together linda mentioned uh, uh kepsa kepsa has been extremely effective not so sure what their constituent when it comes to uh the tech ecosystem and the startup ecosystem. I want to say that my perception about Kepsa has been Kepsa is there for big business. And I think the onus of the Kepsa management is to debunk that thinking, is to debunk that thought process uh, and sort of embrace the tech ecosystem. Consider it as a corporate social investment. Remember that 85% or more of businesses in this country are micro, small, medium enterprises. So if you are a manufacturer who has representation at Kepsa, without those mamadukas, without all those dukas that you supply to, where would you be distributing to? And I can go on and on about this. So I think the point that I'm trying to make is that we are bigger as a whole than as individuals. And again, with that in mind, the government can be influenced in the right way, money or no money. And now a word from our sponsors. Hills Justice Accelerator is the world's only accelerator that focuses on preventing and resolving justice problems. We look for startups that can grow and scale to impact thousands and potentially millions of people. Since 2011, we have supported more than 110 startups across different regions in Africa. We are constantly looking for the next game changer who has an innovative business model has a track record of preventing or resolving justice issues. They have ambition to scale regionally or globally. And most importantly, they have a strong and committed team. To do this, we run an annual call of applications through the Innovating Justice Challenge. Startups get to apply, and those who are selected join the Accelerator program for a period of four months, in which they receive grant funding, business development support in terms of training, coaching, and mentorship. They also get access to a global network, international exposure, and connections for further investment opportunities. Interested? Then apply for the Innovating Justice Challenge at www.hill.org. That is www.hill.org. So, Daniel, we know, even looking at agriculture, which has been sort of the mainstay of the economy for since independence, 
we have in the 70s and 80s built cooperatives uh, which were supposed to sort of safeguard and, and champion the interest of the small-scale farmer. Unfortunately, what we find uh, we found later on is that there will be growth in the middleman and the small farmer, for whatever work he does to produce, would end up being paid little. So you guys came in and said, you know what, we can actually level this playing field, uh, bridge that gap. Do you feel in your own approach as a business, you're actually doing that kind of influencing game and by also creating a very a value chain that supports small-scale farmers? And what have been your lessons uh, in that process? Now, um, allow me to just give you sort of um, a very convoluted answer. Short answer is yes, we are doing something about it. Now, when you think about it is laws exist to kind of create order within a society. Now, our, our rationale behind what order is, is also influenced by what our interest as a society is. Now, based on what our interest as a society is, it kind of then informs the sort of laws that we end up having in place. Now, when you think about societies that are so hyper-capitalistic, for lack of a better word, you tend to have laws that are so pro-businesses and as long as you can demonstrate to government that you are there and you are making a profit, then more often than not, you find that laws are made to, uh, you know, to favor guys who do what you do. So people who are here and wrecking in a profit. So when you dig back to the history of our agriculture sector, yes, it was the backbone of the economy and it was the backbone of the economy because then we used to be a food basket to the rest of the world. You know, we we were growing pyrethrum and exporting it. We were growing coffee and exporting it. We are growing tea and exporting it. And so in line with that interest where we are saying our society is feeding the rest of the world and this is how we are making our income, then you started having laws that are so centered and geared towards an export market sort of thing. And when we got in as Twigger, it was very interesting to note that kind of the local market had been left to its own means in a very interesting way because every regulator and every institution that you know governed agriculture had the export market in mind. And even when you think about the rise of cooperative societies where they had a very noble reason behind them, and I think still think it's a very noble reason to now because essentially what you're doing is you're amalgamating all farmers and kind of creating one point of contact between you know, a myriad of farmers and one of taker or one producer, it kind of makes business very easy for somebody who is interested with working with smallholder farmers because aggregation is a very expensive exercise. So if you can deal with one entity that kind of does the aggregation for you, then it becomes a, a very interesting value proposition for somebody who wants to invest in that line. And the challenge with cooperatives, every time you're creating a bottleneck, be it physical, be it infrastructural, in whatever form it is, anytime there's a bottleneck, a brokerage system always comes up because then, you know, a person who is able to get you through that bottleneck uh, quickly amasses that sort of broker and that sort of middleman uh, power. And which is something that has been quite common with cooperatives in this country. So where you have, yes, I am aggregating a thousand farmers, but since I am the lead negotiator with an off-taker, you know, power starts a mass. I start, you know, favoring those who are closer to me 
or I start favoring myself. And as a result, every time we go to elections, it becomes a cutthroat competition to be the person at the top of the food chain in this cooperative society, because you are the ones who, you're the one who can dictate my future in this society. And that has historically been a, a challenge, especially to smallholder farmers who are in cooperative societies. And that's why we saw, we've been seeing declines in all this once extremely powerful societies that crumble because essentially what has happened is we create a bottleneck where now the gatekeepers dictate, you know, the future of the society and who benefits from this society. And as wrangling starts for, you know, that, that gatekeeper power, then you see the ultimate uh, collapse in it. Now, what, what we've done as Trigger is, is to try and, and, you know, get rid of this way of work and just say, you know, if you're a farmer, good, come work with us. And let's give you access to this market. We will give you that sort of predictability and that sort of assurance that will be there tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and kind of a lot of clarity around how we work. So we, we try to be as open as we possibly can and to work with as many as we possibly can. Uh, do laws play a part? Yes, they do. The, the one thing that I think as startups uh, we ought to be aware of is government speaks the language of regulation. Now, in, in any instance, you know, in whatever field you are in, if regulation has not gotten to you, it will. And, and the bigger you become and the more structured you are and the more you look like you know what you're doing, you will not operate in a gray area for long. Something is going to come and, and it's best to start preparing for that thing that is coming. So hands-off approach will not work. It might work in the short term uh, when you're small and you know, you kind of are trying to figure yourself out. But once your impact starts showing, then again, since you operate in a society and it is government's interest that there be a set way of work within society, regulation is going to come. So it's prudent for you then to be on the forefront of what then this means. Because the beauty of it is, by that particular point in time, you kind of have a better idea of what works and what doesn't work. So then that's what, that's what makes you are very useful partner to regulators, to policymakers, and everyone else around then how do we come up with a set of laws uh, that would make sense for a particular industry. And, and to take back to what Ali and Linda were saying um, around, you know, just the law making process and also the question you asked around whether money works, I'd, I'd say yes or no, because like I said, uh, laws kind of reflect the wishes and, and, and like the views that our society hold. Now, we might see big money work in certain jurisdictions because of just how they are. Because when you think about uh, entities like EABL and BAT and Mastermind Tobacco, these are very liquid entities within, uh, within the country. But every year, they know there's a new tax that is coming to target their products. And, and that's the reality. Because then it, so it always boils down to, you know, given the interest of the society in which I live in, what is my product? What am I doing as a business? What am I doing as a startup? How am I contributing to it? Now, if my product or service is deemed as, you know, negative, for lack of a better word, to the interest of the society in which I operate, you will have a really hard time. Your money might not even mean much at that particular point in time. But if that which I'm doing is deemed to be noble and good, by the society in which I exist. And I've been able to demonstrate that a society can back me up. 
then you'll start seeing doors opening for you. Yes, there could be one or two instances where you have brushes with the law, but ultimately things just tend to kind of stabilize. So it's just to get that congruence, right? And and it's just that, you know, thought process and how you position yourself as a, as a startup. Cool. Fantastic. You know, if, if I was to summarize, so the, the crux of our discussion is we operate in a marketplace. There is only selling and, and buying. Government is a key player to that marketplace because they're there for good or for bad. They are there to retain some level of order. We cannot, uh, a startup cannot hide or play the hiding game for too long. Uh, regulations will catch up, but it is for us to play a very proactive approach. So I'll take now the final question. This is coming from the audience. Is then what does a, a real good lobbying team for a startup look like? Um, and I invite anyone to you know to jump in in that conversation who is ready. Can I jump in here and? Uh... What makes a great lobbying team for a startup? And I think we've sort of answered it in the way we are already collaborating in the ecosystem. Let's formalize it. Let's have what I call a SWOT team, a team that is sort of each and every component of it is playing its part on a continuous basis being proactive, setting up, you know, a sort of an early warning system, influencing regulations and laws even before they come. So having con continuous conversations with lawmakers, both at the county level and at the, at the national level, saying, hey, Daniel, this is an area that you have a skill set in. Would you join us and be part of that and drive this conversation on this? Hey, Linda, this is something that we think that you can, you are doing, already doing very well. Ali, um, you know, you're a noisemaker. Can you really get out there and make sure that everybody, so bringing all those cogs together and making it a continuous exercise that we actually say as an organization that we will spend 5% of our time. Remember, I'm not saying money. 5% or 10% of our time on dealing with policy and regulatory issues. That's true, Ali. And um, I think we, you, you know, we need to dissociate the term lobbying. I think I feel like it's such a big term. And uh, if Hollywood is anything to, to go by, it's, you know, you know, you have this nice plush office on on the topmost floor of UAP Upper Hill. And, you know, you have guys in suits who kind of know like MPs and senators and call them on their phones and all that. It might, that's 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 sometimes a, a gross of a representation by by Hollywood. I think if you're a startup, it there are just a couple of things that you can do just just to try and make sure you're on the good side of things. Um, first and foremost, understand in depth, the sort of regulatory environment you're working in, you know, if you're a startup in education and you're leveraging on technology, you know, what sectors, who, which regulators affect you? Is it the, it's the Ministry of Education. Of course, there's the communications authority in there because of the tech element and all that. And, and not just to know the regulators, but also walk into those regulators' offices uh, and literally know them. <laughs> and, and there's no, there's no shortcut to this. You literally have 
especially for for you know startups where we may not have the budgets to to hire like big firms to do this work for us you have to get in there and do the dirty work yourself uh, you know sometimes it requires you to know you know go book an appointment with uh, with the director general of the communications authority they will give you audience uh, f- from my experience they listen uh, i mean Four years ago, when Twigger was just an idea, we would walk into into ministries and we'd get audiences with very senior people and just discuss what it is we are doing. And and because at the end of the day, it's people on this other end of the line. And and the other thing about uh, being a startup, especially in you know the traditional understanding of what a startup is, more often than not, we are working in an area that is not very well regulated you know just operating within the gray area of the law and and it's it's always very important to then understand in these gray areas what is black and white and have I kind of ticked off whatever is black and have I ticked off whatever is white you may not necessarily need to go harm in terms of of lobbying and like knowing an mp and having a bill taken to parliament etc cetera, etc cetera. sometimes the things that can really uh bite you are like the regulations that are made uh by cabinet secretaries pursuant to laws and more often than not these these are brought to the CS by the regulators themselves so it's very important i think i'd say first of all know who your regulators are and then once you know who they are please walk in there knock on doors tell them look this is what i am doing this is what our organization does this is what our company wants to do we've noticed that there's a deficiency here who can i talk to you know you'll be bounced around offices this will happen for a while but the reality is you're kind of building that rapport you're making your name known you're making your face known and that will really come to help in the future because like i said if the regulation is not here now it's on its way um i'm i'm going to say this i think the ideal um lobbying team needs to be fast i think multidisciplinary um just to appreciate that we do not know everything uh, and you have you know different laws affecting people differently and startups differently so i think it needs to be multidisciplinary um the other thing i think is it needs to be responsive um because governments um are crazy because they are politicians uh, so you will have uh, you guys on one day you are having fun the next day the president realizes they are losing ground and we've seen this in the US and so he'll just sign an executive order just to give you something you guys something to work with um and so it means that if you engage in you know um, policy and lobbying that you must be responsive you can't have this annual plan and then stick to it there's always something coming in and i think at the lawyers have we learned this even during the data protection um you know bill and then also the uduma bill we just realized that we had to have people working on this full time and so we reached out to our members who are lawyers who kept you know their eyes on the media and then also kept we kept having these events where we talked about these policies and inviting people making it fun um and so we realized you can't just simply plan for next week um in one week they would have crazy bills and now we've seen especially in Kenya where we have omnibus you know bills where this this one huge bill that amends everything and so you have barely you have no time to go through it some things are unconstitutional parliament convenes at night and so it means that um you must also have a team that can keep up um and so the question that now i think um ali and daniel have talked about around um even the issue of farmers and getting them into cooperatives um at this point uh, i like the fact that people need to organize but i don't like how 
organization works in Africa. Because right now we have, especially even associations, you set up an association, you guys begin on the same footing, like these are our dreams and goals. And then before you know it, you start getting funding from certain big players and then people get divided. You have to be politically correct. The people who do not want to get in trouble with members of parliament or whatever. And so associations as it is are not independent enough from political and outside interference. Um, I think we need to fix that so that associations have funding. That doesn't mean they rely on corporation, they rely on either big tech or they rely on non-profit and donor organizations for them to exist. Um, if, if startups are willing to pull together and put some money into it, I think they can best work. What I think the pandemic also has taught us is that we don't need as much overhead as we have done um, previously. And so even the idea of lobbying is going to change because we don't necessarily need to, you know, send our members of parliament to Naivasha or Mombasa because that's where they'll go to. If you want to engage them, they're like, no, 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 no. You take us to Naivasha. We'll have those discussions. You tell us exactly what you're saying. And so you have to pay for a three-day trip for everyone that is on his team and the entire committee of parliament, which is about 12 people. So somebody needs about maybe $60,000 to engage parliamentarians for like two days, as in surely who can afford that sort of money. But now startups, especially startups in the tech ecosystem, we have the opportunity to build technologies that would achieve lobbying and public participation without spending this much money. So I think other than organize, we also need to innovate around lobbying and seeing what technologies can we have, uh, what community mobilization avenues can we have online? Can we organize online? Um, I like what happened in the US around um, the, the Sorry, I'll just say the kids on TikTok who organized around Trump's campaign. Um, and so they signed up for this event, used fake emails, fake phone numbers, but then engaged um, and then made their voice heard that we can actually sign up for a rally, but we won't show up for that particular rally. I think that was um, a new way of people organizing, even without resources. I think that's what we need to, you know, to really go for, especially for us in the tech um, ecosystem. For us at the Lawyers Hub, what we see as really impactful is events. Events help people to talk about it, advertise, get points to talk about, because even if you say digital tax is too much, um, I'll just say it as a business person, but unless I attend an event where you break down digital tax, I don't have talking points. I don't have things to tweet about. So organizing also around events would be crucial for people to lobby and have other startups join in, get to know what are the points. Um, and this is also lessons from, you know, the amendment of the constitution. We always have government going on TV, radio, talking to people about, they'll take a tagline and say, Katibabora. And you guys will be like, oh, Bora Katiba. And then they run with this brand. And everyone else you come to speak to, they're like, why are you fighting government? It's because government packaged their message. They went on media and they gave people talking points. But sometimes we don't give people talking points to defend those particular positions. Um, and then finally, I think there's an opportunity to teach members of parliament. The first time, like when we have elections, people are elected from across the country. They have no idea what ICT means. But because they lobby and then their, their party gets seven seats in this in this you know committee, um, somebody is put, put in there and maybe they are from Kisumu. They have never used a computer. They simply maybe just have a phone and this applies to maybe any other constituency. And so they come in and they are tasked with pushing an ICT infrastructure. In Kenya, they don't know how Spectrum works. They don't know what it means, a universal you know, a service fund. They have no idea what those are. And then 
what do we do? We expect them to make laws. I think we must you know, give them the benefit of doubt, especially for new parliamentarians and new member, um, MCAs, that they have no idea what they're doing. They need to be taught. And so anybody who has money to invest, I think you need to invest in teaching people, especially policymakers, to understand what our sector looks like and what interventions may be for us. And then before elections, it is important that we have either manifesto or bare minimums, that as a startup community, we are looking for a member of parliament who will do the following. You know, if you're an MCA in Nairobi, these are our ticks. This is what we want. And let them commit, maybe sign a compact, you know, a compact around it and then hold them accountable when they're in office. That why didn't you reduce licensing fees? Why are we still paying this much for tax? Why aren't you bringing, you know, this sort of opportunities? Um, and Eric, just allow me to say this. I, I, I was engaged by I for Policy. Um, and we had, you know, policy hackathons in Senegal, um, and eventually it led to uh, a startup act for Senegal. And so their environment is really cool around taxation, um, around licensing, around closing businesses. You know, some of us here, you try a new business and in six months you realize ah, it doesn't work, but you've already signed up, you've registered a company, you have Mpesa, you have bank. The, the issue around bankruptcy in Kenya is really hard to navigate. And so you have people like Senegal just saying, we're giving you time to try out a business. If it doesn't work, it's easy to fold up. Those are the stuff that startups need to come in and, and start fighting for and say, can we be like Senegal? Can we be like Tunisia? Those are countries that have startup acts and it is a great way to bring all these recommendations we have and say it is time that Kenya had a startup act. I jump in here last on 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 that issue if if we still have a bit of time. You know, we have such basic issues to deal with as startups in this country. No wonder most of us don't even care about what's going on, about uh, regulation and, um, and policy. Until now, that it's starting to hit our pockets. That's when we are really starting to really feel that issue. So it is the opportune time to really organize. The only thing politicians understand is power. If you can show them that we can get you out of power or we can ensure your continued seat in government, that's the only thing they understand. I mean, let's just put it out there for all of us to understand and for all of us to understand the power that we have in our hands if we can organize. Um, Linda talked about the startup acts in other countries in Africa. The best example of how micro and small medium enterprises engage with government is probably the US through the Small Business Administration, the SBA. If you go to the SBA website, I mean, we can talk whatever we want, we want to talk about Americans and how they do things. But when it comes to how they organize, especially at the micro, a small business enterprise section, they are probably second to none. That's an example we can take, and that's something we can drive from an African perspective in general and from a Kenyan perspective uh, in particular. And once we appreciate and understand how we can drive this at an organizational level coming together, will be the better for it as an as organizations individually and as a country um, as a whole. 
For more of these episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast channel on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform of your choice. To stay in touch with us, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WeAreMetaNBO or email us on Nairobi at Meta.co. Until next time, thanks for listening.